I'd like to read Mark 5, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll open us with prayer. Our goal this evening is this, to learn that an enslaved sinner that was powerfully converted turns immediately to home evangelism. Mark 5, verse 1 says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, all of us are the publican. There has all been a time for us, sometime in our lives, maybe even now, or pre-conversion, when we justified ourselves and saw ourselves not as sinful as the next man. All of us, for a time in our lives, and perhaps even now, we have been like this enslaved man of the Gerasenes. Father, I pray this evening that we would either see ourselves as enslaved and in need of the words of Christ for conversion, or that we would take this story and that it may motivate us to tell many who live nearby about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor friend of mine has told me that he talks more people out of going into foreign missions than encouraging them into foreign missions. Now, this is not because he's against missions. In fact, he's a great proponent of it. But rather, he, fe- he, he sees far too many people with very little desire to tell their neighbors about Christ. He sees far too many people with little ability of telling those nearby about the gospel that suddenly want to go to another place on the other side of the world to evangelize. Well, today we're going to look at an example of Jesus urging a man to remain right where he is to tell others the good news of Christ. Some of you, God may call to foreign missions. He may call you to cross a culture. He may call you to a a different language group. But I'm guessing that most of you here today, God is called to remain right where you are. You've been called to give the gospel to those whom you know where you live. And we're going to learn about that in this story. Just to give you a little bit of the context By the time that we reach Mark 5, the disciples are staggering. They are amazed, they are terrified, they're gasping for breath at an amazing miracle that Jesus did. And is this, he stilled the storm. It reminds me of a nine-hour boat ride that I took back in 2009 from one island in the Comoros to another. If you look at a map or at a globe, the difference between one of those little islands, these are the Comorian Islands, they're a, uh, a Muslim nation, 99% Sunni Muslim. Audrey had just been born, 
And so my wife could not accompany me, so I found another missionary in Turkey, and we rendezvoused from Kenya, and we met on the Comorian Islands, and we wanted to take a ship from one island to the other. And the difference between one island to the other is about one millimeter on the map. But it was actually a nine-hour boat ride. And I knew that things were going to be rough because before we even left, they were handing out uh, vomit bags to those who were on the ship, just preparing them to be seasick. And I remember for those many hours, I was just telling myself, don't throw up, don't throw up, just concentrate, focus, get to the other side. It was terrifying. You're on the open sea and you can't see any land and the white caps and the waves are high. You can imagine how terrified the disciples were even though they were seasoned fishermen. Well, now they are coming to the other side and they arrive at a place called the Gerasenes. And this was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And if you go to this particular place, there are steep cliffs right from the sea up to the land. And upon arrival, we are introduced to the central character of the story. He is a demon-possessed man from the Gerasenes. Well, I have three points this evening. Here is the first one. It is this, the sinner's previous enslavement. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 and look at the sinner's previous enslavement. I like to look at two words that describe the demon's influence on this particular man. Some of us may look at this and say, oh, this is an extreme case. But really, as we look closer, this is the same way that Satan deals with sinners today. Here's the first way to describe the demon's influence. And it is this. He was destructive. He was ruinous. Verse number one. We can see how aggressive he is from the beginning. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He comes immediately to Jesus. And this man is isolated. He's he's living in the tombs and he's dirty. That is, he's morally dirty. That is, he has an unclean spirit. Spirit. Not only is he aggressive, not only is he isolated, not only is he dirty, but he's powerful. That is, no man could hold him down. I read a story recently about a man, about a hundred years ago, his surname was Breitbart. And he was known to be the strongest man in the world. And he would do all kinds of crazy feats. He was known to take a baby elephant and climb up a ladder carrying a baby elephant. He could take uh, steel horseshoes and he could take different pieces of iron and he could bend them in half. He was an amazingly strong man. Well, that's the idea here with this demon-possessed man. Verse 3 says, he lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength 
to subdue him. He was, he was energetic, needing little rest night and day. He roamed the hills, crying out. He was really a masochist. The masochist is someone who harms their own body. Verse 5 says that he was cutting himself with stones. You know, one of the lessons that we can learn from this is the mark of Satan's influence is destruction. And even destruction of the body, which we see so common in our world today. Destruction of the body. Satan and his demons will do everything they can to destroy the work of God. Satan tempted Eve to sin against God. Satan tempted Jesus to sin against his father. Satan uses lies, John 8, 44, deception, Revelation 12, murder, Psalm 106, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander, anything he can to stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan will use any tactic to blind people to the truth of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Where you find demonic influence, you find destruction. John 10.10 The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Well, not only is destructive, but we see another mark of this satanic influence, and that is it was limited. That is, it was restrictive. That is, even though these demons are powerful and beyond the strength of the town and the man, when Jesus comes, Jesus is in total control from the very beginning. Let me give five ways that Jesus shows his authority. Number one, the demons in the man ran and fell before Jesus immediately. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, everything changed. He ran and fell down before him. Imagine little children being baby sat by the babysitter and the parents leave. And as soon as the parents leave, the children are out of control. When they left, they said, now you need to obey. They said, yes, mama, we'll obey. Yes, papa, we'll obey. And they were so nice. And then when parents left, they start running around the house and screaming and hanging on the chandeliers. And the, the babysitter is beside herself. And then several hours later, there's a knock on the door and it's the parents. And what happens? They suddenly fall in line and they meet their parents at the door. That's the idea here. Jesus is in total control. In verse 6, the demons even recognize Jesus as the Son of the Most High. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Beloved, it is one thing to know the truth. 
And it is another thing to believe it and to love it. James 2.19, even the demons believe and tremble, but they did not trust in Christ. Even these demons, these wicked demons, recognize Jesus as the Son of the Most High. Third, the demons beg Jesus to stop torturing them, for Jesus has been saying to them to come out. Look at verse 8, for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Here are the demons. In verse 9 it says, What is your name? And they said, Our name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion was a Roman unit of about 6,000 soldiers. The point is, there were many demons. There may have been something like 6,000 demons expended on one single man to bring destruction. And these demons, even though there are many, they're like students before the teacher. The teacher asks the questions, and they answer. Jesus says, what's your name? And they said, well, maybe we'll answer you, or maybe we won't. No, immediately, my name is Legion, for we are many. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. The demons asked for permission. They begged him. To go somewhere else rather than be destroyed before the final judgment, 2 Peter 2.4. And Luke says in another passage that they asked not to be cast into the abyss, which is what Jesus had the power to do. The demons only ask after being given permission. Satan always wants to destroy God's creatures. And if he cannot destroy God's creatures made in his image, then he'll settle for second place and destroy God's creatures that were not made in his image. Let me pull out a couple lessons from this first point. Satan and his demons have limited power and are under God's control. That is, they need permission. The demons here come to Jesus and ask for his permission. Let us not think of our lives as God on this side is good and Satan on this side is bad and they come together and fight each other. God is playing both sides of the chessboard. He controls everything. Satan is like a dog sitting at the master's table and dares not to move even an inch For the master's eye is always upon him. Demons are limited. They do not know the future. Only God knows the future. They don't know our thoughts like Jesus does. Matthew 9, 4. Now, when it comes to Satan and demons, there are two extremes that we can take. One extreme is very common in my homeland... And the other extreme is very common among Africans. Let me give you the two extremes. The first extreme is this. All evil and sin is from Satan and demons. There's a problem? Witchcraft. A problem? Satan. A problem? Demons. Rather than pointing to sin, we point to demons. Charismatics will do this. They will rebuke the spirit of disagreement. 
They'll rebuke the spirit of adultery. They'll rebuke the spirit of gluttony or of greed. In African traditional religion, much is blamed on demons and witchcraft. For example, if someone is hit by a car while walking to work and dies, or if a child falls out of a tree at school and is killed, the explanation many times in the African mind is witchcraft. Demons. Satan. To get an idea of how common this is, perhaps the most common song of surname is witches. Valoi. Valoi. If a man has two wives and the children of one are healthy, but the children of the other are sickly, the mother of the sickly will think that the, mo- the, 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 the mother of the other one puts some kind of hex on them. It's going to witchcraft. That's one extreme. The other extreme might be from the place where I come from. European nations where no evil and sin from Satan. No evil is from demons. Well, if that's your thought, consider this. If you're thinking is, you know, we can't see demons and all this blaming it on witchcraft and demonic activity. I don't buy into that. Well, let me counter that claim with a few thoughts. Number one, remember that all false religion is really demonic activity. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy 32 called false, Moses called false gods demons. He said this, They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominable practices. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, which were no gods. And then another name for Allah is Satan. Following African traditional religion is following demons. Following the Pope, the Dalai Lama, the Virgin Mary, the Jehovah's Witnesses is not just Antichrist, it is following demons. Another mark, child sacrifice, is marked by demonic activity. Psalm 106, 35-37 says, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Abortion clinics are houses of demons. Demonic activity is marked by bodily self-destruction. When we see the prophets of Baal, they cried out loud and cut themselves, which was their custom. Do we not live in a world today of bodily mutilation? Many people today that come to Christ will come out of similar demonic oppressive settings like this man. Take courage from Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, this brings us to our second We looked at the sinner's previous enslavement. This man was enslaved, but now, next, number two, the sinner's powerful 
Emancipation. Emancipation just means to be released. It means to be freed. Verses 14 through 17. We're going to see his freedom. Four descriptions of this new man. Beginning in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country after the 2,000 pigs ran into the sea. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What does this new man look like? He's clothed. He's in his right man. In the similar account, the synoptic account in Luke 8, Luke tells us that the demons had departed him, and he was seated at the feet of Jesus. How do we explain this? This man who is beside himself that no one could control. We explain it in one way. The saving power of Jesus Christ. Never has the world seen such power as is seen here. Mark 1.27. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Brothers and sisters, your sin may be great, but Jesus is greater. Your trials may be hard, but Jesus is mightier. Your despair may be deep, but Jesus' love is deeper. This is what Jesus was talking about in a parallel account in Matthew 12, 29, when he said, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, Satan is the strong man. And he's living in the sinner's world. And Jesus comes in and frees the people from bondage. Now, an interesting point. Why did the people beg for Jesus to leave? Why would they want someone to leave after such a miraculous moment? Well, we should be reminded that not everyone will rejoice at your conversion. I think of the hymn that says, No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Well, they lost money. And that was their God. That's a lot of bacon. That's a lot of meat that was gone that they had previous. And now it was at the bottom of the sea. They didn't care if a man's life was changed and transformed. What happened to my business? Which brings us to our third and final point, verses 18 through 20. The sinner's persuasive evangelism. Jesus does something amazing here. Because the man begs Jesus to go with him. In fact, this story is really the story of three beggars. The demons begged Jesus to enter the pigs in verse 12. The townspeople begged Jesus to leave in verse 17. 
And the convert begs Jesus to go with him in verse 18. True Christians saved by grace do not have to be begged to be with God's people. In fact, it's the other way around. Paul said in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to be with Christ, which is far better. But our converts today are just the opposite. We have to beg them to go to church. We have to beg them to be with other Christians. We have to beg them to work up courage to hand out gospel literature. Instead, this man's new life was characterized by fellowship with Jesus, obedience to his word, and telling everyone the gospel. Look at verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, this is Jesus now, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, why did Jesus not allow him to go? Wouldn't this have been a great opportunity? The man is asking to be a missionary with Jesus. He wants to travel with Christ. And Jesus says, no. Why does Jesus say that? Well, there's various reasons. Because Jesus does this at, at different times in the Gospels. Sometimes Jesus tells people not to say anything. There's a term for this. It's called the Messianic secret. And there are times in the Gospels when Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And the reason was to avoid confusion and to avoid the miracle seekers who are only there to be healed. Jesus said, not yet. Sometimes Jesus made it hard for people to follow him because he doubted their conversion. But here, Jesus confirms He's not doubting. In fact, he confirms this man's conversion by urging him to tell his friends and his family about the mercy of Jesus Christ. He says to people like you, you visited the missionaries among the Tsongas and you visited those in Botswana and you visited those in Thailand and God may call you to that, but most likely He's calling you to do what he called this man to do. And that is, don't go, stay, and tell everyone that you have influence over about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, do home evangelism. And this man immediately obeyed, and he not only told his friends at home, but the final verse says that he went to the Decapolis, which is a group of 10 cities, and he became a kind of traveling evangelist. Well, what does that mean for you today, practically? How can you do home evangelism better? What can you do to follow the footsteps of this man who had previously been enslaved and now is a vibrant evangelist among his own people. What are some practical ways that you can tell others about Christ right here in Louis Tricard or in Bukota or Elam? 
Well, I'd like to give you about 15 examples, quick examples of practical home evangelism. Number one, engage in stranger evangelism. Do you want to know why friendship evangelism is so popular? The reason is because we're terrified to give the gospel to people that we don't know. And so we talk a lot about friendship evangelism. There's really very few examples of friendship evangelism in the Bible. No, we're to take the gospel to everyone. In Acts 1.8, we're to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth, and that means we're going to have to leave our friends and our families. We need to engage in talking to strangers about the gospel. Number two, give the gospel in the sinner's own language. I want to encourage you to learn the language of the person you're trying to share the gospel with. And if it's totally foreign, learn how to greet. Learn how to say goodbye. Learn how to say a phrase. I think of the book of Acts in chapter 2 when the people were bewildered and amazed and perplexed when they heard the gospel in their own language. South Africa's rainbow nation is filled with foreign languages and one of the best things we can do is learn at least portions of another person's language in hopes of giving them the gospel. Third, preach in the open air. We see Peter doing this. He lifted up his voice. He preached the gospel. When you're afraid, don't be afraid. Tell a group of people the gospel. This is what the apostles did in the book of Acts. Fourth, lifestyle evangelism. You know, lifestyle evangelism kind of gets a bad rap these days. When we look at Acts chapter 2 and verses 44 through 47, we see how their lives were so much like Jesus Christ that the Bible says many came to Christ. Now, lifestyle evangelism is improper if we don't follow up godly living with a clear gospel presentation. But we must match a gospel presentation with godly living. Tertullian was one of the great men in church history. And the way he came to Christ was not when someone gave him the gospel message. It was when he saw the godly lives of Christians that were killed in the Colosseum by the lions. And he gave his life to Christ. Fifth, use words. Now, that might seem obvious. Of course we're supposed to use words when they give the gospel. Well, it's not as obvious as you might think. There was a man in church history, and his name was St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi. And he has a, a famous phrase that goes something like this. Always give the gospel, if necessary, use words. 
Some people argue if he actually said that. But that was his famous phrase. St. Francis of Assisi, always give the gospel, if necessary, use words. And I read an article recently, and the title of the article was, Was St. Francis a sissy? <laughs> that is, was he one of those guys who didn't tell anyone the gospel? He just lived a life, and hey, I'm just living a godly life, and I don't have to say anything. And it actually turns out he never said those words. And actually, it turns out that he told many people about the gospel. Use words. Yes, be godly when you're working in your workplace, but use words. Share the gospel. Number six. Promote and give to gospel projects. Uh, one of my favorite websites to go to is livingwaters.com. And the head of that organization, his name is Ray Comfort. They have thousands of tracks and videos that you can watch. If you have a child at home that no longer listens to you when you talk to them about the gospel, you have a friend that no longer listens to you, then one evening, if that child is still in your home, have an evening of family worship and tell them that you're going to watch a movie. And they'll probably want to join you. And then play one of those gospel interviews that you can see on livingwaters.com. There's hundreds of them. And they're entertaining. And all it is is a man with a microphone giving the gospel to sinners. It's a great way to evangelize. Seven, go house to house. So many examples in Acts. Eight, Encourage evangelism immediately after conversion, just like the woman at the well. Nine, gather when it is dangerous, even if there's COVID, even if there's masks, even if there's a chance you might get sick. When we fail to evangelize or gather when it's dangerous, what we're really saying is we're ashamed of the gospel. Gather when it's dangerous. Ten, add different voices. Hey, have you been sharing the gospel with different people and they just don't listen to you anymore? Just find a different voice who says the same thing and have them speak. We find this with Barnabas in Acts. We find this with Peter in the New Testament. Eleven, free your pastor to evangelize. You might not be gifted to evangelize yourself. You know, there's a, there's a way in which you're evangelizing by doing so much work at the church that you just free him up. To give the gospel to as many people as you can. 13. Pray and sing in public so others can hear you. You know what a great way to evangelize? How many of you, when you go to a restaurant and it's time for your family to pray, and you pray like this? You're making sure no one's looking. And then you say, Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. Why do we do that? Now, I'm not saying that we ought to stand up and raise our hands to the sky and shout at the top of our lungs. I think that's what Jesus was rebuking in Matthew 6. But you ought to pray in such a way that other people can hear you and make sure you insert the gospel message in that prayer. Oh, I pray for this family who's sitting alongside us eating those 
those chicken wings who need the gospel of Christ, they will never listen to us and they rejected the track that I just sought to give them five minutes ago. But oh Lord, may they hear the gospel of Christ and may they believe it and obey it. You say, oh no, we shouldn't do that. I think of Paul and Silas who prayed in prison so that others could hear them. The Bible says the prisoners were listening to them. Hey, they have their own space, Silas. Hey, listen, just by ourselves, sing quietly. No, let's sing and pray so that others can hear us. Whatever number I'm on. Next, bring people into your home. Cyprian of Carthage, one of the great men in church history, was converted when he was living with another man, a, a pastor. He was a famous bishop, and he was converted in his mid-40s through a pastor that was living in his home and gave him the gospel. Next, some of you young people would love this debate. It's a great way to give the gospel. The Epicureans, the Stoics, conversed with Paul. The word conversed sounds so tame to us. But the word conversed means to express differences of opinion in a forceful way. Acts 17, 18, Acts 18, 28. It means to present contrasting viewpoints. It means to debate. It means to discuss forcefully. Maybe not for everyone, but for some of you. And the Lord blesses debates. Some of you are here today because one of your relatives went to a Muslim Christian debate and they heard the gospel and you heard the gospel from that person and now you're converted. Next, teach outside the box. You have to be willing to use some methods that you didn't learn in a book and you didn't see someone else do. If you've been trying one thing over and over and over again, unless it's explicitly rejected in Scripture, try a different method. Paul's method in every town he went to was going to the synagogue first. But then he comes to Philippi and there's no synagogue. And he says, all right, I'll just go to the river. There's a lot of women down there and I'll start teaching. And they came to Christ and a church was planted. Teach outside the box. Well, you know, you, you go door to door in the villages here, but we can't do that in Johannesburg. That's why I don't evangelize, because they have palisades and they have gated communities. And therefore, I don't evangelize like you do in the village. Then try something else. Try a different method. Teach outside the box. Well, pass on good evangelistic preaching. One of the brothers here, that's your main ministry, handing on sermons to other people. John Owen was converted by hearing a great sermon. Give away literature and booklets. Bunyan was converted when he was married to, he married a Christian woman. They were both poor, but she brought two books into their marriage. He read the books and he was converted. John Huss was converted by reading a cartoon well, I have many mother, others, but I'll stop there. We learned a story this evening about a man who was enslaved by sin. He was emancipated 
from that sinful lifestyle through the power of Jesus Christ, and he became an evangelist among his own people. And we ought to do that too. May we use some of these practical methods to tell everyone we know about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to earth, he took on the form of a servant, he lived a perfect life, he went to the cross, he did there for us what we could not do for ourselves, he rose again three days later, and all those who place their faith and trust in Christ alone will be given the Holy Spirit and will be given eternal life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're grateful for this wonderful example, a missionary that was rejected, but he became a great, became a great servant for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be diligent in telling those around us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.